0: And not only did he cross from the American side to the Canadian side on a tightrope, he did it a bunch. And he did it with all kinds of different instruments. He did it on stilts. And then one day he took a stove, a camping stove, and he walked out to the dead center of the line, and he sat down and he made himself an omelet, and he ate the omelet, and he packed up the stove, and he walked back over to the other side. Finally, at the end of one of these days, Blondin's got a wheelbarrow out. And he starts walking back and forth across it on a wheelba- with a wheelbarrow. And he puts a sack of taters in there. And then he puts a bunch of rocks in there. And then as he's coming back out, the crowds on the side that have gathered to watch him every day and watch these exploits, they yell out from the crowds and say, I, I believe you can do anything. I believe you can walk across this thing all day and do anything. He dumps out the rocks and he tells one of the young men that's there, and he said, well, then get in the wheelbarrow. The guy stayed on the rock. Friends, that's the collision of belief and faith. There are a lot of things that we may believe in. We may believe exist. We may believe to be true. But until we act on them, belief is not faith. Until we're ready to get off the safety of our mountains where we think we are safe and get into the sanctity of not the wheelbarrow of a fancy guy that's crossing a tightrope, but to get into the arms of Jesus and allow him to carry us through the tempestuous parts of our life. Until then, our belief becomes real. Until our belief becomes action, it is not faith. Remember, as Jesus talked about faith and the apostles talked about faith, they talked about it being so much greater than belief. Because the demons believe and tremble. Fools believe but don't act. There are many that believe and will tell you that Jesus is the Son of God, that God is the one true God, but yet their lives never change. It's not a lack of belief, it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith to do the things that we need to do. So tonight I want to ask you this question, what's great, what's so great about faith? And we're going to look at the elements of faith that make it great, that make it powerful, that make it life-changing and we're gonna look at this through the character, through one of the characters in the New Testament that Jesus ascribes as having great faith. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is a firm persuasion, a conviction based upon hearing, akin to, to persuade. It's used in the New Testament of always of faith in God or faith in Jesus or of spiritual things. So it's things that, that we can't put our hands on, but we believe so much that we act upon those. The Greek here is to persuade, to draw towards one thing, to conciliate, to believe, to obey. In the Greek lexicon of Hedrick, it is said, the primitive signification of the verb is to bind and draw or lead as signifies a rope or cable. I find that fascinating. That if I believe enough in Jesus, if I trust him to be who he says he is, that I'm willing to bind my life to him with a cable. I'm willing to not only get in his wheelbarrow, but I'm willing to tie myself to his back and go wherever he goes. Be led the same way animals are led by those that possess and own them, to be tied, yoked to Jesus. Does that sound familiar to something that Jesus said? Remember when he asked the question in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the rest of that verse? Take my yoke upon you. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Let me tie you up to me. Put my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy. Jesus wants to lead us and wants to guide us, and that leadership that we get by Jesus, the privilege that we have to obey and to follow him, to have our lives tied to him, Jesus describes that as rest. He said this faith is so great when we act upon it, it acts as rest. Rest for a weary soul, peace for a life that's marred in sin. While we think we are safe on the sides of our mountains, the truth is the mountains are killing us. And if we don't get off the mountain and we don't get ourselves tied to Jesus, then we're doomed to fail and we're doomed to fall away. Now, the Bible describes it as this, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when we talk about the fact that it is the substance of the things that we hope for, well, well, what do we hope for? What are are all of us hoping for? What what are we here tonight? Why, Why do you come On Sundays, why do you gather here as the family of God? Well, we all hope to go home one day, don't we? We all hope to be reunited with Jesus, to walk with him and to talk with him, to be in the presence of God, to have our tears wiped away, sins banished, to be in a place where there is no night. Is not that what we hope for? Now, faith is the actions in our life, the substance of what we're hoping for. Do we live as if that's what we want to do? Do we act as if that's what we believe? Do we make decisions as if that's what we're working toward the end? Or are we sitting safe on the side of our mountain saying, I believe I can go to heaven, but I'm not willing to do the things necessary to get there. I believe that God will save me, but I'm not willing to do the things necessary to yoke my life to his in order that I can get there. See, faith says you act. Remember James' discourse on faith? Show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because see, what's the problem with that? You can't show me faith without doing anything. Because what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. What James is pointing out there is that when you say you have faith, but you don't have any works that show that faith, you're lying because you can't have faith without works doesn't make any sense, because faith at its very essence is substance. It's evidence of things not seen. So let's talk about Matthew chapter 15. If you'll open your Bibles there with me to Matthew chapter 15, and we'll start here in verse 22, and I want to introduce you to a Canaanite woman. Matthew 15 and verse 22, we read about this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus because her daughter is possessed with a demon and is is enduring trials, struggling. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that what a Canaanite woman is. You see, a Canaanite is actually worse than a Gentile. Because a Canaanite is a mixed breed between a Jew and a Gentile. Jews were the chosen people of God. And if we look at Jesus' interactions, he's to come to the chosen people of God. But we see a few interactions with Canaanites. Remember Jesus when he's down at the well and, and he's drawing water and he asks the Canaanite woman that's there to draw the water for him. And, he said, and she looks at him and says, "Why you're a Jew, why would you ask me, a Canaanite, to draw water for you? Y'all look down on us. We're, We're worse than Gentiles. So she's coming from a position of great disadvantage to come to Jesus. But yet, through the course of this story, Jesus tells her that she has great faith. Here's the interesting thing about that. There's only two times that Jesus ever tells anybody they have great faith. One is a centurion who would be a Gentile. And the second one is this Canaanite woman here. Now, I want you to let that sink in. Jesus doesn't tell Peter he has great faith. He doesn't tell Andrew or James or even John, the disciple that he loves, that he has great faith. He tells the centurion and this Canaanite woman. I could tell you, standing here from this pulpit tonight, that I think, Kyle has great faith, and that's an opinion, right? Some of you may agree with me. Some of you may disagree with me. I don't, I don't know what all Kyle does around here, but doesn't it, how much more weight does it carry when the person that sees the thoughts and intents of the heart says it and describes it to you? You see, my opinion may carry some weight because some of you all might think, well, you know, he's a pretty sharp guy. He's insightful. I think if he's got that opinion, it's probably right. But when Jesus says it, it's gospel, and when not only Jesus says it, but the Holy Spirit records it, and it's left behind for our understanding, even though, as John writes, many other signs and wonders were performed, that there's not enough pages to fill up, but these are written that you may believe. This is left here for you and I to know that Jesus, as he looked into this woman's heart, based on the actions that we're going to walk through tonight, what great faith looks like Great faith not in the eyes of men, not in the eyes of the Pharisees, not in the eyes of the Sadducees, but great faith from the one who great faith is belonged to. When Jesus says, "You have great faith, friends, you have great faith, but why was it? Why was it great? Let's read the story together. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered and said, "O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Listen, as we read this story... Every time I read this story, it hurts a little differently. Here this woman comes to Jesus in tears, distraught by the state of her daughter. Any one of us who has children or grandchildren or anyone, especially someone that's in our care, the worst thing that can happen is something can be wrong with them. Every parent I've ever talked to that has a sick child or a child that's battled a difficult illness would every day trade their life for their child's. Every minute of every day would do anything to take away the pain. The worst problem that parents have is looking at the pain that is in their children and not being able to do anything about it. She came with tears to the only one that could help. Now, reading into the text, I would argue she probably has tried everywhere she could get her hands on. She's gone to the priests and she's gone to the Levites and she's gone to anybody that she thought could help her. And then she hears about this man that's performing miracles that is doing things and acting as if he is God. And she comes to him with tears. How many of us like to start an introduction that way? First time I meet you, I'm just a wreck of myself in tears, asking and begging and blubbering to get it out. What do we normally do, right? Put on that good face, right? We get ourselves up, we... Kind of straighten, and we ask politely and nicely, and we may devolve into tears, but we surely don't start that way. But I want you to, to to hear in this story the burden of this woman's heart, and how she comes to Jesus, and then how was she treated? Everybody tried to get rid of her. Jesus told her to go away. Now listen. I know based on, you know, my overwhelming personality and the smile that y'all would never think that I've been somewhere where I wasn't wanted, but I have. And I know when it's time to go, okay? I I can read the nonverbal cues. I know when I'm not wanted somewhere and I need to move along and try to get to the next place. And I've got enough pride about myself that if I don't, you don't want me somewhere, I'll go find somebody that does want me. Jesus told her no. I'll promise you when the disciples told Jesus to get rid of her, they didn't do it quietly. They didn't pull Jesus over to the side and whisper in his ear, come on, Lord, get rid of this girl. They said it right there in front of God and everybody Lord, she's making a mess out of this. You do something to run her off. Jesus told her to go away. Disciples told her to go away. Then Jesus calls her a dog. Listen. Folks, I've been insulted in life. I've had people say all kinds of things about me. I ain't never been called a dog. And I ain't never been called a dog by Jesus. I want you to listen to that response. First, he tries to get rid of her easy. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, woman, take take a hint. You're not my problem. You're somebody else's problem. I'm here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her again. He said, I'm not going to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, let me be a dog if I can have some crumbs. I don't want the whole blessing. Let me get the crumbs that are left over after the children eat. I'll be a dog if I can have you. I'll be a dog if I can taste of the richness of your glory. She didn't pick herself up off her knees and say, how dare you call me a dog? She said, let me be that dog if I can be your dog. I'll take you however I can have you. And Jesus just looked at her. And he said, great is your faith. You, as you asked, this will be done for you. And her daughter was healed instantly. You see, these faith healers make you come to a coliseum and make you stand up in the crowd and they'll slap you with the spirit or knock you down or bowl it into you and it's a big show and it's very, very successful in nine to 12 months if you've had an ounce of recovery. Jesus never saw her daughter. Jesus never laid eyes on her, never put hands on her. His garment didn't cross her daughter's flesh. Jesus just said it was done, and it was done. Notice there's not even any follow-up from her. She doesn't say, all right, Lord, great physician, let me take you back to the house and let's get this rectified. He said, be it done. And she believed it was done. In her faith, she came and asked for just a little, just crumbs. I'm convinced this woman would have been exorbitant if Jesus would have just lessened the oppression of the demon. Even if he didn't completely heal the daughter, if he would have just given her life some ease, she'd have been happy to have that crumb from the master's table. But yet, he proclaimed her faith to be great and her daughter was fully healed. There's not a greater feeling I'm convinced in life of having your child battle a serious illness and you to hear back that they're fully healed. There's pictures and accounts and things that you see at children's hospitals of children that have had cancer and terrible diseases that they've been able to cure, go into remission, and the child's proclaimed healthy finally, and the beaming look in the parents' eyes, the smile on the child's face, the relief that comes from that. Can you imagine? Can you see this woman's face? Can you see her pride, her joy, her exhalation at this great blessing that Jesus did for her? All because her faith was great. Did she believe that Jesus could heal her daughter? Absolutely. But where faith becomes substance, where belief transforms into faith, is when she would not be denied. Friends, what about in our lives? What about in our lives? What's standing in our way of getting to Jesus and being tied and bound to Him? Is it because we won't come with tears? Is it because our pride says we've got to save a little face? One of the interesting things I've always noted within churches is how few people respond to the call or the invitation. Just the law of large numbers says we should have at least one person, at least A couple of times a month that's struggling with something enough in their lives that they either need the prayers of the congregation, they need to repent of something publicly, or they need their faith increased. But yet, I'm sure you can look at your numbers and think back over the time that you've been here at Lakeside, or the time you've been at your congregation, and you could probably count on one hand the the last five people in the last 10 years that have come forward. Why is that? Well, you see, preacher, if I come forward, they're going to know I'm a sinner. You see, if I come forward and I tell them that I've got sin in my life and I need prayers of the congregation, then they're going to know that my life isn't perfect. Friends, if my life was perfect, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't come. If I wasn't an absolute wreck, I would never come to services. I wouldn't. But I'm here because I am messed up and I'm broken. That's why I'm here. Because I need you. And I need you to make me better. And I need God to make me better. And I need the great physician to work on my stubborn, foolish, pig-headed heart. That's why I'm here. Now, if you're here because your life's perfect and you're here for vanity's sake, then that's another reason why you need to come forward and we need to talk. But we can't come with tears. We can't come and let everybody know that we don't have the perfect family with the perfect number of kids and that everything's fine. Like we lie to each other at the back door every time we come in, right? How you doing, brother? I'm fine. Well, it looks like you just woke up out of the back seat of your car. Are you sure you're fine? Yeah, yeah, good, good. We don't have any idea what happened at home. We don't know what they're struggling with. Y'all ever had this ride in the church? You wake up late Sunday morning. You're trying to get to services. Nobody's where they're supposed to be. You can't find your clothes or your socks or your toothbrush, the kids can't find their stuff, you're running around like a maniac, you're throwing a Pop-Tart or a frozen waffle that's not even cooked into their mouth, into the car on the way to services. On the way to services, everybody in the car blames everybody else in the car for why you're late, what happened that morning, why the alarm clock wasn't set, right? All the problems of the day, and you pull up in the church parking lot, you put the car in park. And and somebody yells, all right, shut up. Let's go in there and pretend we love each other. And we put our church face on. And we walk in and we act like nothing happened. When the truth is the young family that's struggling with that really needs some advice from the older family that now has grown kids on, hey, when you have mornings like this, how do you stop from murdering the family? How do I get through this? See, that's the beauty of the family of God is we have all these other families that are the next place ahead of us. You know, we got young families that have no idea what they're doing. And then we got families that kind of know what to do with young kids because they messed up a bunch when their kids were young, but now their kids are teenagers and they don't know what to do with teenagers. And then we got the family that's recently empty nesters because all their teenagers finally moved out of the house and are off to doing good things that can turn around and say, hey, this is what we messed up with when we had teenagers, and here's a way to do it better. And then the empty nesters that are struggling with what do we do with our lives because we've been chasing our kids for the last 18 years, there's a retired couple that says, let me tell you about how to do this. And the couple that's recently retired that's trying to figure out how their life fits in and how they went from 100 miles an hour working 60 hours a week to a dead stop There's a couple that's been retired for 20 years that's there that'll tell you how to get through and how to fit in and how to plug in and how to be useful in the kingdom. What to do with your time and your effort and your energy. But see, if everything's fine, we don't get to have any of that conversation. We don't get to share any of that knowledge. We don't get to pour our hearts out and tell each other that we really are messing up and don't know what to do and we're struggling. Because pride says, I can't walk in here looking like a mess. I can't let you know that I cry. I can't let you know that some days I'm a bad husband and a terrible father. To the best of my ability, I can't do it right. And my wife can't let you know that some days she struggles. If you knew that, surely you'd never let me in a pulpit. May not even let me lead singing. we got to get past this. The reason our faith isn't great is because we're afraid to tap into the resources that we have. The reason why our faith isn't great is because we see a great resource that's there. We see what God has given us and what God has intended for us to use to get it out of this thing alive. And we say, I don't think so. I'm going to try to do it on my own. Every once in a while when the Olympics come on, what we watch, you know, the different things that they do, and whether it's the gymnasts or the figure skaters or whatever, you know, the harder their routine is, the higher score they get, right? So if somebody comes out and just does a basic routine, they can score X. But if you got some backflips and some goofy stuff, you can score Y way up here. I'm convinced as Christians, we think we need to up our degree of difficulty. I don't need the Holy Spirit involved in my life. I don't need the elders involved in my life. I don't need the other members of the congregation, the older families involved in my life. I can do this all on my own and I'll get the big house in heaven. Friends, if we get a house and the projects in the back of heaven, that's good enough. Friends, I'll live under a bridge in heaven if I'm there in the presence of God. Where there is no night and there is no pain and there is no sorrow. I don't need the big mansion. I don't need the big house. I'm going to be lucky to sneak in. Our pride has to get out of our face way. we got to be willing to be vulnerable to one another and vulnerable to our God. Will we let people turn us away? This woman didn't let the disciples... Didn't let Jesus? No, no, no. She was getting to Jesus. However, she had to get there. How many of us have lapsed in faith because of maybe some unkind words another brother or sister says to us? Folks, if you've never preached for a congregation, the most dangerous spot in the entire building is not the pulpit it's standing at the back door so back in the late 90s 98 99 2000 I was in the preacher training classes in Danville and I was young and full of energy and not a whole lot of wisdom and one of the things they thought it would be good for me to do is to go preach at country churches all up and through Pulaski County so I was on a circuit there was four or five little country churches 10, 12, 15 people each of them that were thankfully hard of hearing and would let me come about the fourth or fifth sermon I ever preached and I'm not going to tell you where it was just it was in that county and there's 4,000 churches in that county so you ain't going to figure out who it is get done with the sermon and this older woman comes back to me and she says son you should probably think about doing something other than preaching but we appreciate you coming and walked out the door I thought there for a minute and thought, was it that bad? <laughs> I thought it was pretty decent, otherwise I wouldn't have said it. I could have that day quit. I could have got back in my car, went back to Danville, told them I wasn't cut out for preaching and drove back to Cincinnati where I was born and raised and started working somewhere else and doing something else. But I decided that, you know what? What? I think I'm a little bit better than that, and I'm just going to work harder. And circa 20 years later, people still come and listen to me talk. I have no earthly idea why, but they do. You see, we can let a lot of things get in our way. We can let even good constructive criticism when somebody's trying to help us get in our way. One of the hardest things I've found, at least in my world, of trying to help people is confronting others when they're dealing with sin. It's just as hard for the person that comes to you with a problem they think you're having as it is for you to hear those words. We don't ever think about that, right? Because we think they're just going to meddling and don't judge me, only God can judge me and all this other foolishness we put in our minds. Instead of thinking that, you know what, if they thought enough to try to come and talk to me about this, maybe, just maybe, I should listen, even if they don't use the right words. Because that's what happens when we get nervous. We say foolish things that we don't necessarily intend to say. What we're really wanting to do is put our arm around them and say, I love you and let me help you do this. But what we end up doing instead is pointing our finger at their chest and telling them all the reasons why they're going to hell. ain't what we want to do nerves, lack of understanding, lack of ability to communicate. A lot of things just get us to that point where we say some stuff that that's really not how we meant it to come out. Meant to say I love you and instead I condemned you to hell and that's really not what I had in my mind. But there are many people that have left the church, have left the faith because what should have been carefully uttered words came out wrong. they decided they were going to go do something else. Decided they were going to leave Jesus over it. We've got to make a decision in our lives, friends, that even if we got to go through a wall to get to Jesus, it's worth it. Even if we have to take some looks down somebody's nose, but if I get to Jesus, it's worth it. Even if very uncarefully worded words... Cut us to the quick. As long as I have Jesus, it's worth it. Jesus himself called this woman a dog. I want you to let that sink in. I may be able to even blow off something you say to me tonight. But when Jesus looks at you, and compares you to a dog. She wouldn't even let that stop her. She said, I'll be a dog if it's you, as long as I'm your dog. There's many people today that don't want to follow the truth, don't want to come to Jesus because of the light that it puts back on ourselves. It's hard to stand in the light of Jesus and not see your own flaws. All of us would like to believe we're better than we are, but the truth is we're really not. I often say when we first meet somebody, they don't really meet us. They meet our representative. They meet who we'd like to be. We're dressed nicer than we are. Our teeth brush more than it normally is. We're friendlier than we normally are, and we put that person out in front Because we want to put on our best face, right? I want you to like me. So I'm going to be the best version of myself. When the truth is, if you come to my house, I'm not wearing a suit. I'm probably not clean on a Saturday. I'm in basketball shorts and I'm laid on a couch. But I wouldn't want to come and let you see that right now, right? The best version of ourselves is what we put forward. But when we stand in the light of Jesus When we stand in the light of the truth, we see just how frail we really are. None of us are as confident as we want to be. We don't have nearly enough figured out. We have a lot of insecurities. We got a lot of worries. We got a lot of anxiety. We got a lot of fear. And it's hard to stand in that light. Will we let that light blind us and make us back away from Jesus? Because What Jesus demands of us, what God demands of us, is the truth. But before we go feeling like we can never be that vessel of honor, before we say, but Mike, if you only knew how messed up I was, you'd know I've got no place in the kingdom. I want to remind you of a lot of characters that were a lot more messed up than you. Anybody remember Samson? He's about the worst judge there ever was. If you look at Samson's life, I don't know that Samson ever really did anything that was of anybody else's free will but his. And yet, he was God's judge. And yet, God used him for his purposes. Samson, in the wreck that was his life, and all the lying and conniving and things that he went through, God still used Samson for good. So I want you to consider, if God can use a guy like that, what can he do with somebody that's just maybe a little bit better than that? What can he do with somebody like me that actually wants to try? I may mess a bunch of stuff up, but I want to at least try to get it right. Think about how how much good he did with Saul before Saul made the turn and turned into an awful king. Saul was a good king for the first part of his reign. Then he got into himself, and pride carried him away, and he got lost. But Saul did a lot of good stuff. And David, the man after God's own heart, I mean, let's be honest with who David was. David was a womanizer. He had seven or eight wives when he took Bathsheba. I mean, he he wasn't the greatest guy if we saw him out here on the street. He'd already been punished once for the census. Remember, God said don't number the people. He numbered them. Got punished for that, right? His own sons don't think enough of him that they overthrow him and run him out of town and try to take over the kingdom. Think about what kind of daddy you got to be that your own son's ready to put a knife in you. Yet, David was a man after God's own heart. When we stand in the light, inconvenient truths come to mind. When we stand in the light, difficult things come. Now, David wasn't a man after God's own heart because David didn't make any mistakes. It's the way David responded to mistakes. It's the way you and I respond to the mistake. You can be a good person and do bad things. We don't like to see it that way, right? If you read on the news tomorrow that it turns out Mike's been a bank robber for the last 10 years, Does that mean everything I said here tonight wasn't true? Does that mean all the other good that I've done in different places doesn't matter? Or does that mean I made a mistake that I've now got to pay and atone for? It's not the mistakes that define us, friends. It's how we respond to them. It's not the light that casts us out. It's the light that draws us in when we're honest with ourselves, when we're honest with who we are, when we're honest, then that belief in the fact that God can make me into a vessel of honor turns into the faith that says I'll walk through the light to get there. I'll get off this crumbling mountain and get into the wheelbarrow. I'll take the yoke and I'll take the chains and I'll bind myself to Jesus. I'll become a slave of righteousness. Because that's the only place I really want to be. Well, we ask for just a little knowing that we'll receive greatly. One of the hardest things we have in life is we we like to compare ourselves to other people. Well, Mike, I can't have great faith because I'm not going to be Paul. I'm not going to spend my whole life going over the world, creating churches and baptizing people and casting out demons and doing these miracles. I just can't do it. I'm not that good. Okay. I don't know anybody else that was either. And we say, I-, I can't even be as good as-, as maybe our preacher or our deacons or our elders or a big-name preacher in the faith. But is that what Jesus requires of us? Seems to me he said that sometimes just a cup of cold water is all we need. It's the right heart. It's the right intent. It's a little. We take a little step and Jesus takes over. We take a little step in the right direction. We say, God, use me, mold me, make me into what I ought to be. We find out we can be something far greater than we ever thought. I'm not there yet, but one of these days, one of these meetings I'm going to do, I'm going to have the courage to put up pictures of high school and early college wild, reckless Mike. You wouldn't recognize him. He looks like a fool, and he acted a fool for a long stretch of time and was the farthest thing from the faith that you've ever seen. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. Please don't misunderstand me. But I go back and I look at that guy from time to time because I see what happens when I say, not my will, but thine be done. I can see what happens when you take a loudmouth, argumentative, confrontational jerk and get him to shut his mouth and listen. Listen. See what happens when you strip away the desire to be right all the time and instead replace that with a desire to be helpful? Friends, my greatest flaw has always been being too smart for my own good. I've won a lot of arguments and lost a lot of souls because I had to be right. Finally, I got it one day. And realized I don't have to be right if I can be helpful. Think me a fool if I can get you to Jesus. Because it's not about me. The more we realize in this life that it's not about us. It's not about how smart I am. It's not about how charismatic I am. It's about how I can help get you to Jesus. How I can help you see the truth. And if he can do that with somebody as messed up as I am, y'all aren't as bad as I was. He can do great things in our life if we'll just have the great faith to accept that. Tonight, the question I leave you with is, what about your faith? Would you categorize it as being great? Would you say you've got great faith? But the harder question than that, would Jesus say you have great faith? Or would Jesus find us lacking? Would Jesus find us dissuaded? Unable to come if it cost us tears. Unable to come if there were people in our way. Unable to come if the demands of God were in our way. Unable to come because we don't know how to ask for a little. Would Jesus find us lacking? Would we say it's too hard? Or we've got too much pride? Or do we have enough faith, enough trust to act upon the belief that we have in Jesus? If you don't, there's help. We can help you. That's what we're here for. I look at salvation maybe a little bit differently than you've seen it before. Salvation, I think, instead of steps, is more of a cycle. It begins with learning about God. The more we learn about Him, the more we trust Him, the more we love Him. That knowledge, that trust, that love leads us to being able to turn away from our sins, to embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and to die to sin. Being immersed in water, having those sins washed away, rising to be selfless. Less of self and more of thee. And then we go around again. And we keep learning. And we keep trusting. And we keep loving. And we keep turning. And we embrace Jesus deeper. And we put to death the sin in our members, and we war against the flesh, and we become more selfless. And then we love more, and we learn more, and we trust more, and we turn more, and we embrace deeper, and we hold on tight as we try to vanquish the sin in our members. And we're more selfless, more compassionate toward others, more full of forgiveness, more full of grace more looking out for the best in others and trying to help everybody get to our same hope. Friends, if you're not a child of God, you haven't started this cycle. And we can get you on that tonight. We can help you. We want to help you. The family of God here stands to help you. If you are a child of God, you're somewhere on that wheel or maybe you're teetering off the edge. Maybe you haven't been spinning around and you've gotten stuck somewhere. Let us pray with you and pray for you. Let us study with you. Let us help you see what you can be, that vessel of honor maybe that you don't even trust yourself for. Have great faith and take the first step you need to as we stand and as we sing.